Two and a Half Admins, episode 95. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, another plug for your ZFS developer job, Alan. Yeah, so Clara is looking to add an extra ZFS developer to our ZFS team. So if you want to work on ZFS and have experience with file systems and kernel development and would love to join our great team, it's remote. So wherever you happen to be, get in touch. Uh, link in the show notes to the job description explains what you'll be doing and what you'll be working on. Working uh, with my team to add new features to ZFS and solve interesting problems and working across Linux, BSD, and maybe even some Illumos. Well, like I said, link in the show notes. Let's do some feedback then. John and some other people got in touch to say Stingle is actually available on the Apple App Store, so Apple users can definitely use it, not just Android users, as Jim said in episode 92. To be fair to Jim, Stingle themselves are inconsistent with that on their own website. Uh, up at the top of the page, it does in fact say that it's available on the Apple App Store. But at the bottom of the page, which is where I was looking when I gave that answer, it said coming soon to the App Store. Yeah, and they didn't actually have a link to the App Store on the website. Yeah, so it was a mistake by you, Jim, but it was a forgivable one because Stingle's website was uh, not brilliantly put together. So thank you everyone who pointed that out. And uh, yeah. I guess iOS is covered then. So Albin said, on episode 89, Jim mentioned that he starves his KVM VMs to let the host handle the caching. Do you know of any learning materials for how to set up desktop VMs using KVM? No idea what resources to give the VMs. Unfortunately, I don't really know of any great learning materials in particular, but I can certainly talk about what I meant when I said that I starve them. Basically, what that refers to is if you're provisioning a bare metal machine, uh, you pretty much always want to cram as much RAM in it as you can afford for the task at hand. You want a lot of RAM left over after all of your applications have reserved all the memory that they need to do their jobs, because that leftover RAM then acts as a file system cache, which is extremely important to alleviate some of the load on your storage system, which is going to be the slowest part of any given computer. So that makes a big difference. If your reads don't have to come from the actual hard drive, even your writes get effectively accelerated because they're not stacked up waiting for drive time behind the reads. Remembering that, correct me if I'm wrong, Alan, I think it's still pretty much all storage is half duplex. You can read or you can write. You can't do both at once. Everything except for NVMe the interfaces are one command at a time, yes. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was NVMe I was thinking of. Or those those really weird, like, dual SAS drives where it's basically two hard drives and one chassis with one power supply. <laughs> the dual-ported SAS drives where each port talks to a different part of the hard drive, not the regular dual-ported one stuff. Yeah, yeah. Dual actuator. Yeah, different heads on each side of the drive with different controller. Crazy stuff. Anyway, way, way in the weeds from uh, what Alpen was actually asking about. So basically... In a VM, I typically will recommend looking at how much RAM that VM needs to actually execute the programs that it's running, to do the job that it's doing. And you don't let it have more RAM than that, other than, you know, you, you give it, I don't know, call it a 10% or a 20% fudge factor. So if your applications take up a little bit more RAM than you expected, your VM is not going to go into a swap death spiral or kernel panic because it literally can't allocate more RAM. But what you don't want to do is just give it a great big honking chunk of RAM where it's got four times as much RAM left over as what the applications in the OS actually needed to run. 
that's about the ratio you'll usually see on a well-provisioned desktop machine. You use maybe 20% of your RAM for your apps in the OS, and the other 80% ends up being available as you know kernel and file system cache. But in the VM, if you starve it, what happens is your storage load gets cached at the host layer rather than inside the VM. Now, you'll find some VM administrators who will say, oh, well, that's bad because it's less efficient to access that cache from the host layer than inside the VM itself. And as far as that goes, they are actually correct. Now, if you've got storage cached inside the VM and the VM's kernel wants to get at it, yes, it will be a little bit quicker and more efficient to service that from inside the guest's RAM than from the host's. However, there are some big downsides to that. One is that let's say that you give this, uh, you give a virtual machine that only needs four gigs to run, but you give it 32 gigs of RAM because that's the kind of thing you're used to doing, right? So it's maintaining about 28 gigs of cache at all times. Well, that 28 gigs of cache is only for that VM. And even if that VM is just super, super slow and almost never hits the storage, it's still going to fill up that cache. And that's all that RAM on the host can do is this useless cache for a guest that doesn't need it. Now, on the other hand, if you had starved that VM, it needs four gigs, you gave it five or six. Now, anything that it, that it wants to cache from the file system, actually, the host is going to do that as the host fulfills those needs. And... When you've got other VMs on the same system and they also need cache, the host has an oversight over all of them. It can see what blocks on your storage system are truly the hottest ones, and it can try to keep those in cache regardless of which VMs they belong to, so the system as a whole runs much better. There's one other really significant advantage I want to talk about real quick, and that's the fact that when you go to reboot a guest, any cache that was inside the guest gets flushed. It's just like you powered off a bare metal machine. But if the file system cache for the guest was in the host layer, rebooting the guest does not flush it. So although you've rebooted, you're rebooting with hot caches. Yeah. You're not waiting while everything crawls, while everything comes off of bare metal to begin with and eventually finally gets up to speed. And that's why, uh, you know, like if you if you look at any of my VM demos, uh, you know, for Sanoid stuff, you'll see like, you know, Windows Server going from shut down to start up to log in at the desktop, you know, in sometimes less than a second. And that's why, because the caches are still hot. They never go cold because it's a host layer, not inside the guest. Yeah. Aggregating it all together on the host means that you're making the most, the best use of that cache. Is if you think about having four separate caches instead of one big one, that means each of those four, only half of it is the most used stuff. The other half is the not as used stuff. And one of those VMs might be idle and now you've got all of its cache basically not being used, whereas the host could make better use of that. The only case where you maybe want to do it the other way is if the VMs are are hostile to each other. If you're hosting a bunch of VMs that are owned by different people and you want to make sure that, you know, person A, whose VM is going to be really busy, isn't stealing all the performance from person B, C, and D, then you might instead have them cache it and make sure that, you know, you can't use more cache than your amount of cache or whatever. But in almost every deployment, the VMs are closer to being friendly or all owned by you, the administrator. And so, yes, aggregating the cache on the host will give you the best performance. To the efficiency thing, the one advantage to managing the cache inside the VM is that the operating system there knows more about what's going on. For example, you delete a file, it can know, all right, none of that I need to keep in cache, whereas on the host, it can't tell, although... Most VMs now can use trim and it will actually tell it that, hey, I've deleted that range. And so the host can learn about it somewhat. But you get very much the same 
arguments that apply for whether you should have the database do its own caching or let ZFS do the caching can apply where sure, maybe the database knows a bit more about it, but the host knows more about what's going on in the overall system and maybe can make a smarter decision. Mm -hmm. And then also when you get into ZFS, ZFS caches the compressed version of the block, which means it might be able to cache more data than the, the guests could themselves. Even if you give them all the same amount of RAM, they might only cache 80% as much as much data. Well, there's an even bigger reason uh, to do it on the host layer if we're talking ZFS specifically. And Joe, Alan brought it up, not me. But now that we're here, if your host is using ZFS as the back end for the VM storage, then its cache is going to be the ARC, the adaptive replacement cache, not a simple uh, least recently used cache like what you'll have inside your VMs, whether they be Linux or Windows, uh, you know, BSD, what have you. So the ARC is a much better algorithm for keeping the blocks in cache that you actually need in cache because it tracks how frequently they're accessed, not just how recently, but how frequently. And so blocks that you need all the time, you know, over the, the life of your workflow since the system has been booted, the ARC is going to be very reluctant to flush those. Whereas with a an LRU cache, like everything besides ZFS that's going to be available, you know, when we're talking about these VMs, it's all going to be LRU. And if you wait too long in between accesses, it doesn't matter if you've asked for that block 5,000 times that day. If you wait a minute too long, it's going to get flushed because other stuff has been read in and whatever is least recently used, it's out the door. Yeah, especially means that if you run a nightly backup, that backup is going to blow everything out of the cache as the things you're backing yep. up. Each file, every file got accessed once. So those are all the least recently used file. Whereas ZFS is scan resistant. The, the idea with the ARC is that that will happen with one part of the cache, but the other part of the cache will hold on to those frequently used items so that you don't tank the performance there. And then the adaptive part is literally deciding, you know, when you boot, it's half frequently used, half recently used, but then it changes that slider and moves more to one or the other, depending on which one's going to give you the best cache hit ratio. And I have a whole talk from FOSDEM or VBSD, you can find it on YouTube, on explain like I'm five, how the arc works, it explains how the algorithm works, and it's really interesting. But yeah, the biggest advantage is that scan resistance. So Jim, you are frustrated with the browser experience on Ubuntu. I am. I built a new machine for my upstairs office at home. Really, there wasn't anything wrong with the old one other than it just wasn't beefy enough to play Elden Ring. And I had a personal problem in that if I wanted to go downstairs and play Elden Ring for three or four hours, that meant that I was downstairs away from the family incurring spousal ire <laughs> for being squirreled away in my hole, not for, you know, work purposes. So I, I built a nice new machine with a beefy processor and GPU and installed Ubuntu on it because it might be a gaming machine, but, you know, I'm still going to game on Linux. It's how I do. And I went ahead and, and installed it with with Jammy, you know, with the new 2204 LTS rather than, than 2004. This was my first, like, on the bare metal experience with Jammy. I'd installed a couple of VMs with it, but I hadn't done anything, you know, on the metal. And I hadn't done anything with a GUI on Jammy for production yet. And so... I had somehow managed to forget, Joe, I think, already had discovered and been frustrated with the fact that Canonical had decided in recent versions of Ubuntu to move Firefox from a proper apt-installed deb package to a snap. And the snap has some really serious performance problems. On an elderly laptop that Joe's wife has, uh, the first startup of Firefox after a, a cold boot takes, what, it was 45 seconds, Joe? Yep. Yeah, so this machine is considerably faster than uh, Joe's wife's 
ancient decrepit laptop. It's a brand new 12th gen Intel i7 with 64 gigs of DDR5 RAM and, uh, you know, a fast NVMe drive. And still on a cold boot, that freaking snap took 12 seconds to wow. bring up a window with, you know, the, the start page in it for Firefox. I was annoyed with that even as the browser to download your real browser with, you know, like <laughs> like Internet Explorer 11 on Windows. I was like, no, this is just not going to fly. So I did an apt install Chromium. And guess what? Chromium has also been migrated to a snap. So at that point, a vaguely normal person would have just said, okay, whatever. I already got Firefox on there and it sucks, but I'll download Google Chrome and, you know, that'll do its thing that it always does. It's the easiest possible on Linux, you know, download and install, and it is not snap-based and it'll be great. But I really wanted to start migrating over to Firefox on the desktop side. I use it on mobile. I don't normally use it on the desktop, but I want to. And so I was like, no, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to install Flatpak and I'm going to do, I'm going to add the Flathub repo and I'm going to do Flatpak install Firefox. And you know what? It was perfectly fine. The technologies are very similar. They provide the same kind of containerized sandboxing and isolation from the rest of the operating system. And, you know, the ability to include all your libraries, all the things that Canonical wants to get out of pushing everybody towards Snap. But the big difference is the Firefox Flatpak is actually properly tuned and optimized. And on a cold boot, you've done absolutely nothing else with the machine. On the same machine that takes 12 seconds to bring up the Firefox start page on the Snap, it's a few milliseconds on the Flatpak. It looks no different than it would if you had installed a proper Deb. Now, I suggested to you that you just get the tarball and extract it and run the binary. It's a reasonable thing to suggest. And that was originally kind of what I had thought I would I would probably do. But I wanted to see how the Flatpak would run. Because Canonical has been talking a lot about how snaps don't have to be slow. There are a lot of things that you can do wrong when you build a snap. There are things that can time out trying to connect in ways that haven't been enabled in the snap build. There can be issues with how it was or was not compressed. Uh, you know, th there's a lot going on there. It's a pretty complex build system. And a lot of the snaps are just, they're wildly untuned. And that's where the really big startup performance lag comes from. And the thing is, though, Canonical has been saying that for a long time, and it's true. But the implication there is that all of our snaps are horribly tuned and we're not doing anything about it because it's been years now and this performance still sucks. So I specifically wanted to try the flat pack to see, you know, hey, is this going to be just as bad or is it fine? And the flat pack basically demonstrates that what Canonical has been saying about how snaps don't have to be slow is absolutely correct. There's not necessarily anything really intrinsically different about the architecture in a Flatpak that made Flathub's version of Firefox faster. The difference is simply that it was built properly, which raises the question, why isn't Canonical building these snaps properly? It's Canonical doing it. When you read their blog post and the whole thing, they talk about how the Firefox itself comes straight from Mozilla, not touched by them, which is awesome. All they do is build the snap. Well, that's where the problem comes in because when they're building the snap, they're not doing a good job of it and the performance is just absolutely unacceptable. Yeah, it looks like one of the things they mentioned here is it's partly related to the fact they're using SquashFS and it's compressed and seeking within the compressed thing is sub-performant. It's interesting, we're doing some work on my uh, day job of something similar to this and looking at using a Z standard seekable compression where inside 
the compressed archive, you can put metadata saying, you know, the 12th file starts at this offset. So you can jump to that instead of having to decompress the whole stream to, to eventually figure out where the chunk you're looking for is and really speed things up. And I wonder if they could do something like that in SquashFS to make the performance not so bad. But also for a headliner like Firefox, could you consider using a not compressed SquashFS or just not using SquashFS or something? The compressed SquashFS is not the problem with that Firefox snap. You can and will see, you know, an increase in startup time based on compression in, in a SquashFS package. And that would explain some of the lag that Joe's wife sees on her ancient laptop. It absolutely does not account for 12 freaking seconds on a 12th gen i7-12700K. Specifically, we're not talking about the time it takes to decompress it. We're talking about the problem with seeking within the compressed file. Meaning you're basically having to decompress the whole file. Then you decide you want to read from over here and you have to basically rewind to the beginning and then seek until you get to that spot again. Because you can't tell where the 12th file in that compressed blob is, except for to start at the beginning and decompress it until you find it. Right. But my point is you decompress the entire SquashFS compressed file basically the first time. And on an i7-12700K, that does not take enough time to register. Okay, because the, the way the article is talking about it here, it sounds like every time you seek within the SquashFS, it was having to deal with the compression, not that it was decompressing the image once and then using it. It was like the SquashFS was staying compressed. And if you have a lot of small files in a SquashFS, it could be a problem. And they talked about just improving the ordering of the content within the SquashFS to put the commonly accessed files at the beginning would actually improve it. And it's like, well, then it sounds like SquashFS just needs to get better at dealing with compression. Even gzip has uh, this concept of once you find it, you can put a bookmark in your actual like decompressed state, just in memory, so that you can get back to that file again if you need it later. And it seems like if SquashFS is using gzip, that something like that could make a big performance difference here. Well, so SquashFS can use a number of compression algorithms. It used to be that all the SquashFS stuff with snaps was gzip, but they they now do a lot of them with uh, you know lighter algorithms. I don't know exactly which ones. I, I believe they were talking about using LZO at one point. They may have switched to uh, Z standard. I'm, I'm not sure. But honestly, at this point, I don't really care. This has been a thing they've been pushing for years. And they now have an LTS desktop release that they pushed out that the browser is effectively just freaking broken in. And there are no in distribution options to fix that problem. You can't go to an alternate supported browser because the other supported browser, Chromium, has also been migrated to Snap only. Uh, you can't install it from apt because it's worse than if you can't install it from apt. You can absolutely say apt install Chromium or apt install Firefox. And what you get is a stub that just goes Snap install Chromium browser or Snap install Firefox. And you're right back where you started. So, you know, you have to go off the reservation to get a working browser one way or another, whether it's doing the IE11 trick and, you know, downloading a package like, you know, what, what Joe did to, uh, to get his Firefox straight from Mozilla, or like what I did and, you know, saying the heck with all of that, installing the Flatpak system and doing Flatpak install Firefox. Either of those things work, but the point is, I just, it blows my mind that Canonical released an LTS without an even vaguely acceptable browser in it. Well, especially like this is like a headline feature, right? It's it's the web browser, especially Chrome and Firefox. It's like, this is something you would spend a lot of time fiddling with Snap to make it good at these two apps above all other apps. 
when Canonical talks about how much faster snaps can be, it's starting to sound like when Ethereum bros talk about proof of stake and how that will, you know, that'll make it how it's not all energy inefficient anymore. And it's like, you've been saying that for years now. Shut up about it till it's done. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A, support the show and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres, and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups, and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to linode.com slash 25A, create a free account, and you get $100 in credit and support the show. That's linode.com slash 25A. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to learn more about that, you can go to 2.5admins.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send any questions for Jim and Alan or your feedback, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. Joshua writes, So I know I've been doing this thing wrong the whole time, but I've been using rsync with a passwordless SSH key on my home lab to rsync on a two-hour cron job to a backup remote web server. For a fairly public service, I host an average 300 to 400 active connections per day. I know that SSH should have a password, but what do I do for some automation in this? I do pay Linode for daily backups, but I always like having a self-hosted solution for backups as well. And related to that, Alex writes, Do you typically suggest and require passwords on SSH keys for encrypted file systems? My understanding is that if my home partition is Lux encrypted, having physical possession of my hard drive would still prevent access to the contents unless an attacker could guess or crack my Lux encryption password. Is there some attack vector I should be considering that would necessitate SSH key passwords? Is it possible to access the hard drive contents if, say, the machine were suspended in S3 sleep? All right, tackling these one at a time, let's start out with Joshua. Uh, Joshua says that he thinks that his SSH key should have a password for these, uh, you know, scripted uh, rsync cron jobs that he's running. And I don't think that an, an SSH key passphrase is necessary in that instance. I don't think it buys you a whole lot because it is an automated job one way or another. Even if you put a key on there, now you've got to automate a way to fetch the key. And an attacker who has the ability to get at the key is he's going to have the ability to see how you're fetching the, uh, the the passphrase for it as well. So I don't think it adds much there. The real value of a passphrase with an SSH key is it's a form of two-factor authentication. What that does for you is it says, okay, an attacker has compromised my machine and they can make off with any file on that machine, including my SSH key. However, because my SSH key also requires a passphrase to unlock it, that attacker isn't going to be able to leverage that stolen SSH key to get into all my other servers because he compromised my machine at home. That's that's basically what you're getting out of that. And I think the fact that you're talking about automated and not human-run stuff, 
Yeah, you can still use a passphrase for the key and you can automate a way to fetch and apply it. I just don't think that it buys you anything significant security wise. Now, in Joshua's case, if he wants to have a solid, you know, second factor for this that limits the utility of an attacker potentially stealing that key and trying to use it elsewhere, I think the answer for that is going to be to limit what IP addresses the web server is willing to listen from. If it won't accept an SSH connection, at all from anywhere but Joshua's home system, then yeah, a stolen key is still not going to do an attacker any good. Yeah, I would say also you want to make sure that that SSH key only gives you access to write a backup, not do other things on that system. You want it to be you know a completely unprivileged user that's just going to dump files into the backup. Right, absolutely. You could use an SSH agent to manually type in the passphrase, but then you're looking at having to do that every time you reboot that machine and having your backups broken until every after every time you reboot until somebody goes in and types in the passphrase is just not good for backups. Yep, correct. Leading into the whole uh, question of security and what the SSHing user can do, uh, one answer for that, I, I found that a lot of people aren't aware that rsync has a daemon mode. Um, almost every time I see someone else use rsync, they're just using rsync and SSH, and it's just, you know, basically a bare file system call. And any set of files and directories that that user on that uh, separate machine can see, you can pull over the rsync tunnel. However, there's another way to do it. You can instead set up an rsync daemon, and the rsync daemon can run as whatever user you like, including root. And when you rsync to the daemon, you can still connect over an SSH tunnel. However, what you'll have access to is all the files that the daemon has access to, not necessarily that user. So this gives you a way that you can publish a key to a completely unprivileged user account that can't actually see, let alone write, to anything of importance on the system. But because it's actually connecting to the daemon over that tunnel, not just using that user ID's privileges, you can still get a root level backup of the machine. So that's very much going to be the way that you want to do that. And it, I'm glad that Alan brought that up because, yeah, that is a big deal. There is an enormous difference security-wise between sharing a root SSH key, passwordless or otherwise, between two machines versus just a very barely privileged user account. All right. I think that covers Joshua pretty well. So let's move on to Alex. Yeah. So Alex is wondering about if his hard drive is encrypted, does he need a passphrase on his SSH key? And it depends a bit on the type of attack you're expecting. Like you say, if someone physically has your hard drive and it's not powered on, then when they try to access it, they won't be able to see anything until they decrypt the Lux part. But if you look at the thing like somebody has an exploit for the browser and is able to read files out of your home directory, mm -hmm. then they can just copy your SSH key and now they have it. Whereas if it had an SSH passphrase on the key, then they'd have a file that's RSA encrypted and until they enter the right passphrase, they wouldn't actually have the SSH key. So the password on the SSH key is still protecting you in the case of an encrypted hard drive while the system is on, like while you're logged into it. Whereas if you only have disk encryption, it turns out once you log in and enter your Lux password, disk encryption isn't a factor anymore until the machine is powered off again. And I think most people realistically should be more concerned about getting owned, whether it's a browser exploit or, you know, clicking the shiny link in your email or having SSH on on that machine and you didn't realize it and somebody gets in, whatever. There's a million ways that you can get owned. And I think it's more likely 
realistically that you get owned and that attacker is looking for SSH keys and figuring out what to do with them, then you get your laptop stolen and the kid that stole your laptop in a Starbucks is actually trying to boot a Linux laptop and rooting around in it for SSH keys and, you know, looking to leverage. No, man, they're not trying to pivot to anything but the pawn shop. Yeah, like unless your your laptop's getting stolen at a hacker conference or something, they probably don't <laughs> even know what an SSH key is. Yeah, which which doesn't mean that you don't need to do Lux. I mean, the Lux is still absolutely a great additional security layer. I do recommend it. I'm just saying that when you're talking specifically about does Lux mean I don't need passwords on my SSH keys anymore, I think the answer is a resounding no. It does not obviate that need at all. What we call belt and braces, I think you call belt and suspenders, maybe? Our grandfathers do, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I haven't seen somebody wearing suspenders other than Santa Claus in a long time. <laughs> well, these phrases linger in my country. And then basically just something that has a key ring. Like I use uh, an SSH agent so that I put in the password and then for the key and use it. But after half an hour, I'll need to enter it again so that I'm not having to enter it every time I'm trying to SSH in. Because once I start SSHing, usually I'm all over the place, especially like my Git repo, pushing and pulling to four different remotes or whatever. That would be a lot of typing in that passphrase. But if I've been away from the system for a while, I don't want that key laying around either. Let's answer Alex's final question real quick. It kind of got away from me until just now. Alex asks, is it possible to access the hard drive contents if, say, the machine were suspended in S3 sleep? And the answer to that is, well, not unless you wake it up, because nothing actually changes with the hard drive itself. We talk about the Lux volume being unlocked, but that's not actually a change in state of the Lux volume. It's a change in state in the host in that it has loaded the key that it needs to access it. So while the machine is asleep, the key is also asleep. So no, you can't just like... I don't know, sneak in and get like an extra SATA connector on the drive or something. Nothing has changed at that level. Right. You know, you have the theoretical that NSA could liquid nitrogen your RAM and be able to read the key out of it or something. But I don't think that's what you had in mind. No. And then it also depends. I don't know, like, does Lux forget the passphrase, like the key for the encryption when you go into sleep and make you enter it again when you unsleep? Or does it remember it across sleep? I'm guessing it remembers it just because... You'd have to unmount the file system otherwise, right? Yeah, you'd, you'd, you'd have to go to extra effort to forget it while you were asleep. Uh, I don't think that it does forget it during S3 sleep, but also, like you said, I think that's orthogonal to the, the actual intent of the question, which I suspect was just, you know, a, a worry that if my laptop is suspended, you know, maybe the attacker can pull the hard drive out of it while it's unlocked and plug it into another system. But because the hard drive itself is never locked or unlocked, it's just a question of whether or not the decryption key is loaded into memory in the running operating system. That's really what answers that question. Right. Well, we'd better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send any questions for Jim and Alan or your feedback. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Rissington. I'm at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.